Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Katie Underwood runs a successful PR and communications agency. We met up with her to find out more about her. Restaurant professional Katie Underwood was exasperated by the quality of PR support available, so she did what a typical woman making waves would do. She set up her own PR business. We're interested in hearing Katie's story. Thank you very much for joining us today on Women Making Waves, Katie. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me. Now, you went to school in Northamptonshire, but you chose to go to university in Cape Town, South Africa. So let's go back to that time. You're about to leave school, so what's your plan? To take a gap year and then do what every other person in my school was doing, go off to university um, in England. But, um, yeah, after travelling across Africa... Um, on my gap year and hitchhiking and backs of trucks and doing lots of alternative things that my parents wouldn't enjoy. I um, (laughs) wouldn't let my my children do that today. But um, yeah, I I decided that that would be a much more interesting route to take. So So there you are in South Africa. So so what happened? Why did you not come back to university then? When I was travelling down Africa, I met somebody who said that the University of Cape Town was really beautiful. It was on the side of Table Mountain. It was an incredible place to study and had a great vibe and so he gave me somebody's phone number and the first day I arrived in Cape Town uh, I phoned this person up and they gave me a tour of the campus and I I went to the admissions office and they accepted me there pretty much on the spot with my with my A-level results I was I was packed up ready to go so they said yeah absolutely join us at the beginning of term so that was an interesting phone call that I had to make to my parents. (laughs) I can imagine so they're expecting you to come back you never came back from your gap year effectively then did you just stay on there? I never came back, but I would chase the summers. So I would come back at Christmas. Um, no, I would go there at Christmas, and I would come back in the middle of summer for my birthday. It was freezing cold in Cape Town, really windy. You can't use an umbrella because it's too windy. So you oh, just gosh. get... It's just it's a very, very... Um, yeah, it's it got some wild winter weather. So I would, yeah, just chase the summer around the globe, and it was it was fantastic. That sounds terrible, Katie. So. Yeah, I, I, I do wonder every day why I came back, I must say. I, I, I can imagine. What were you actually studying in Cape Town? I went there to study development studies, politics, wanting to change the world. Um, and I, after a few months in Africa, I definitely changed my perspective on things. I became, you know, we're really in a bubble here, the way that we perceive third world countries, and they perceive themselves in a very different way. And it taught me how to look at things from a different perspective. And I realised that it wasn't my job to go in and change anything. It was, um, I needed to study the structures and the reasons why things were the way they were and yeah I, I kind of became part of that society in a different way so I ended up studying um, history and English but I looked at a lot of post-colonial studies um, I did a lot of writing from the perspective of South Africans Indians Chinese a lot of kind of colonized peoples and the perspective that I then got from you know, the alternative compared to how I would have studied things in the UK was um, was really valuable actually yeah when you were younger, did you always conform? It sounds like you were never quite conforming all the time. Did it? Did it? Did you, when you say different perspective, did you have an, a, a moment when you were younger that you didn't conform to things? Is this your life ahead? 
Uh, yeah, I suppose I've always been a little bit difficult. Um, and, <laughs> difficult. Yeah, a, a difficult woman and um, perhaps a difficult child. Uh, yeah, I, I was at boarding school and I definitely didn't really conform with that. But I did, you know, my results were really good. Um, but I had, I wasn't put in the Oxbridge stream, for example. People didn't expect me to be near the top of my class. But I thought that I was good and I was going to do well. And I, I proved that with my results. I got straight A's across the board but I wasn't somebody that they would have expected to to do that um, and so yeah I think that I didn't want to follow my peers and follow the same path because I wasn't quite sure that that was that was really for me I suppose I've had a I've always been confident you know I'm a confident person I think I'm going to do well I work hard and it might not be I might not go about it in the same way but, mm. Is that yeah. your parents doing? Is that something that you that you've seen in other people? Because it's lovely to hear how confident you are, mm. and it's something that's very very important. It's something we try and get across, and we're making waves. But were your parents mm. ever as a, sort of a, having an effect on that? Well, my, <laughs> I don't know if I should say this, but my <laughs> my, my dad um, my dad went to school um, locally, and he got expelled from school, but he he intercepted the letter. And he, um, his mum never knew. Love so uh, she's not with us anymore. But she, he, uh, he intercepted the letter and he just set up his own business. In, I think it was in the attic in his house. And yeah, he, he was an entrepreneurial minded person. And uh, yeah, he did, he did quite well in the end. But he went, he went and told his mum many years later. And her response wasn't positive. She couldn't see the funny side of it. Oh, really? Despite him, no, despite him being a very successful individual through his own, you know, off his own back, he, um, yeah, she, she wished that he hadn't got expelled from school. So effectively, she thought he was going to school every day, but he was yeah. kind of going out the door, then nipping back in and up the stairs yeah. to the attic and quietly, I think quite, so. <laughs> that's yeah, amazing. I think so. And yeah, he set up his business and... Um, yeah, it, he he was in um, computers at the time, you know, in the early 80s before they were really a thing. He just saw a niche and, and followed it through. And yeah, he was obviously quite confident in what he was in his abilities or he saw that there was something in it. Yeah, I, I, I possibly I'm a bit like, possibly I'm a bit like him. What about your mum, Casey? Did she have a, a sort of a part to play in this as well? Uh, yeah, so my, I always wanted to be a young parent. My mum was really young when she had me. I think she was... Just before she was 21, she had me. And so uh, when she left school, she didn't have very many qualifications, but she went back and studied when we were kids, got her maths GCSE so that she could become a teacher, went, did her, then did her A-levels when we were small, and then um, went to Cambridge and did teacher training. And then, yeah, became a teacher when I was a teenager. So, um, yeah, she was uh, the academic-minded person in my family, and I saw her studying when I was a kid, so... It was an example that was set for me that it was important and that she had to go back and do it again. So, yeah, you, you see that it wasn't just me who was studying, it was also her. You're at university in Cape Town. We haven't heard anything about food yet. I know you're a bit of a foodie. How did that creep in then? What happened next? Well, I really needed some money. <laughs> I was living in Cape Town. <laughs> and I saw in, in South Africa that people take the service industry really seriously. And I thought... I w I'm going to go down to the waterfront in Cape Town and I'm going to see the busiest restaurant and I'm going to try and get a job there because they'll get the best tips. So I saw a restaurant where the, everyone was wearing white shirts and tuxedo bows, even the girls, and um, I just arrived with my unbrushed backpacker hair <laughs> and my, sort of, my sunburn 
and um, and said, yeah, I would like a job. They asked if I had experience, and I gave them my my boyfriend's phone number in England and told them that he, they could phone him for a reference. He was my employer. And of course, they never phoned him, which was lucky. But <laughs> I had no experience. <laughs> there is an element um, of your dad here, I can tell yes, already. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's just waitressing. How hard could it be? And it turns out it's actually really hard. But they, they took it really seriously. There was a full training manual. They gave you lots of checklists that you had to run through, lots of exams you had to take before you could even take orders or carry plates. I thought, oh, right, this isn't quite what I had signed up for. So I worked for two months pretty much for free because I wasn't earning any tips and you'd earn about five or six pounds a day working as a waitress in South Africa because of the exchange rate. Yeah, it took me two months to really become a pro waitress, but I knew everything about wine and food by the time I had sat that that exam. I sat an exam at the bar and... Um, yeah, so, you know, the, the perspective that that gave me was that would never have happened in the UK. Um, people hadn't, at that point, taken the service industry very seriously. And I could see really highly qualified people who were you know, aspirational. I wanted to be like these incredible people who could just swish through a restaurant, take all the orders, pick up all the stuff, tell somebody about the 20 or 30 different wines from the region on the list and introduce the seafood, do it by weight. It was it was complicated. It was a complicated job. Yeah. And yeah, I, want, I wanted a part of it. It gave me a buzz. So being good at that put a spring in my step. And you really picked the right restaurant there, actually, mm. didn't you? <laughs> you did pick the right restaurant rather than some backstreet place where you were just kind of slopping up to a table and throwing the plate down. I mean, you picked the right one because that, that's given you a fantastic grounding, presumably. Yeah, I wanted to do better there. Everybody was better than me, and I think that that was um, it was quite inspiring because I don't like being a bit rubbish. So I, you know, I was pushing quite hard to improve my knowledge, and it, it was a bit of a um, baptism of fire, really. Poor boarding school girl who had just arrived from off the boat in England it was uh, yeah they were speaking different languages. Um, it was you know working alongside the people that you'd only really seen in passing was a, a kind of a really interesting experience for me and i learned how to speak afrikaans which is oh, not really? at all useful nobody's ever tried to hold a conversation with me in afrikaans they always reply in english but i can understand it so i can overhear what's going on did you find parts of south africa that were really really challenging and you thought crikey what am i doing here no i think that um at that age you, you're really flexible in terms of your how you perceive yourself you go with the flow and I felt like I was a South African person after a, a year or two I mean I spent five years there five six years so yeah I, I didn't really know England so when I came back I found normal English things really challenging like uh, terrible things like never put petrol in my own car in South Africa because <laughs> people they, they they do that at the petrol station so when I came back aged 23 I needed somebody to help me just to make sure that I was doing it right yeah there was an element of danger but of course you know it's something you hear about not necessarily something you see mm. um, and it was it was quite a western culture there in Cape Town and and yeah it, it it was just my life and I remember I was at boarding school so I wasn't um, out and about in Cambridge doing fun things I was in a lazy Northamptonshire village I wasn't allowed out after seven o'clock at night so mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I became myself, I think, being very independent in that environment. I couldn't go home to my parents' house on weekends. So I just became an independent adult. And you stayed on in South Africa after university? I started studying towards my honours, um, and I got a place at Cambridge to come back to do a master's in Cambridge. But the, the years didn't fit together. So essentially it's January to December um, academic year in England, and it is obviously October, September beginning um, 
yeah, other way around, January to December in South Africa. So I got a place and I was going to come back to Cambridge to do my master's and I thought, and I phoned them up and I said, would I have this place if I don't finish the academic year because it doesn't really fit together. Anyway, I didn't really wait for the reply, I just came back anyway. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I don't know, I'm not really sure why I was doing that, but I came back to Cambridge waiting to hear from Cambridge University about my master's place and I started working at a restaurant and I just carried on in the restaurant. I didn't ever go and do my master's at Cambridge. I just stayed earning money. And yeah, they, basically they said to me, you, you needed to have finished your, your honours year in, in Cape Town to, to take up this Cambridge place. And I was like, oh, well, I'm going to work in restaurants. I'm going to make money and not be poor. I'm an impoverished student in a Cambridge <laughs> library because I'm really enjoying this new restaurant experience. So yeah, I'm, I'm pleased I did because I met my husband on the first day in that restaurant. So. Oh, really? So then we're moving on to the next stage then. So, so yeah. you've changed your mind from being sort of academic into the, the real working world and you've now met your husband. And I'm, I'm assuming that that then took the natural course and, uh, and, and you, you got married eventually. Oh, yeah, after two kids. <laughs> it was, <laughs> sort of went, went, around, went about it in, the, in an upside down way. But, but yeah, um, we're supposed to go to Cambridge, ended up just working at a restaurant in Cambridge and not going to Cambridge, um, and then having to work out what it was that we were doing. And my husband was a chef. We were working in a restaurant together, um, and we decided that we were going to do that together and embark on that new journey. And, um, yeah, I was obviously staying... My parents are from well, live in Cambridge. And so when I came back to the UK, I moved back in with my parents. And I hadn't lived with my parents since I was about 13 years old. So... Uh, I was looking to get out of that house <laughs> and so we moved quite quickly. And, and that kind of brings us on to what you're doing at the moment. What, what made you set up a PR a communications business? It seems a bit of a step away. I was working, my husband's a partner at Steak and Honor, and I was running the back of house communications for that business. And we opened a restaurant in 2017. And in the run up um, in 2016, I was pregnant with my third. We were trying to launch this this restaurant. We were expanding our business, and we had to communicate with everybody in Cambridge um, ab about the launch. We had to speak. We had to get that message to the customer base in Cambridge, um, and we did it by a variety of means. We used social media a lot. We were one of the first businesses that were really activated um, a, a, a really effective social media following in Cambridge, and, and I learned on the job. There were no handbooks. You couldn't study. <laughs> some of my clients, um, some of the people who work with my clients now say to me, oh, did you study this at university? <laughs> I say, no, there were no smartphones when I was at university. You know, there, there was no textbook. Yeah. So I, I learned how these things worked, and, um, and, and it was quite successful. The launch of the restaurant was a great success, but one of the things we did do was employ a PR company, and it was difficult. They, they couldn't do anything for us that we didn't give them. They weren't working within our business. They were outside. They were in London. They were getting the messages that we were sending them. And I thought, well, I can do this. I can do this better because I can advocate tirelessly for this business from within. I know who my customers are, and I can reach them. I don't need a PR company. And I think a lot of businesses, really, they, they just don't have time to tirelessly advocate for their business publicly because they're busy. They've got their head down running their business so it was an accident that I started doing this because another business owner asked me to do the same thing that I'd done for our business for their business and so it started so it wasn't um, a sort of I didn't contrive to create a PR agency I first just took on a new client because he could see that I was 
I understood Successful. how it worked. Yeah. Yeah. And and I and he wanted me to do it for him. And um I started to see that this level of support is something that everybody needs within their business to some degree. And some people can do it really well themselves, but if they've got their hands on the kind of the mode of production, they absolutely yeah. cannot do anything other than just keep their keep their head above water and just kind of keep swimming. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I do now and I've found that actually you know, just bringing all of those disparate elements together when it comes to communications, if it's social media or newsletters or dealing with all of your reviews, which are exhausting and, you know, quite soul-destroying at times when you're operating a restaurant and you get a Google review at 2 o'clock in the morning and you think, oh, no, really? Um, <laughs> to, to speaking to magazines or to launching new products, I sort of try and bring all those elements together and just make it a little bit easier for people to manage. You use a lot of photography as well, don't you? Is that really important, bringing mm-hmm. imagery into your Twitter account and Instagram? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think you know, the, the culture now has become so visual that um, people are people respond to images. Um, and so I was always kind of like an amateur photographer back in the day. I would go out for meals and I would be that person who took pictures of their food. And over time, you know, cameras have got better. I did some training. Um, I've got myself a, an Olympus camera. It's really, it opened so many doors. You know, for me, I, I took photos and wrote about restaurants because it was my hobby. I was interested in it. I lived that life. Even when I had kids, I would make sure I wasn't sitting at home with the baby. I'd take the baby out and we'd go and sit in a cafe or sit in a restaurant and I'd speak to the people who worked there. Um, and through sharing those images um, with other people, it, it kind of created a conversation. And you can do that from within a business as well. It's no good to say, this is what we're serving for lunch. You know, you have to ask a question. You have to get people to respond to you. And it's, it's part of a wider conversation that you can have with your customers. And that's what we're trying to create is something that's, you know, it's from within. It's real. It's not contrived. It's not run by a PR agency in London. It's you trying to have meaningful dialogue with your customers. Years ago, when you worked for a PR company, you had to be very careful that you didn't have a conflict of interest if you were in the same industry. How do you make each client different and how do you approach that without having sort of a generic knowledge of social media for restaurants? But how do you actually divide it? Yeah, it's a really good question. This is the challenge that I am now reaching is that I can't have a conflict of interest. I want to advocate for a business and be on their side. I work very closely with that business. So you know, I'm, I'm in the meetings, I'm in the business development meetings, I'm in the menu tastings. So there are only a few clients that I can take on at that level. And I have started to take on businesses that aren't restaurants, hospitality businesses, only if they approach me, only if they understand that my background really is in, in food and hospitality. Because there is no conflict of interest if I'm doing a, a beauty salon or another business that is just from a slightly different angle. Um, And that's where expanding to an agency really has begun because I have to bring on other experts to deal with those clients. My speciality is this, but a lot of the skills that we have are transferable across many different types of businesses. And so the conflict of interest really, it should never be a thing because we are always looking for new areas of business to work in to kind of show our skills to the best. And those businesses to the best advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, I, I now have um, a couple of people who work with me um, and they bring their own ideas to the table. Um, so it's not just me with my one set of ideas trying to do that <laughs> for every business. That's why bringing people into the business was so important, because when you work on your own, you know, you become blinkered, especially if you've got your head down all the time, like those businesses that I work with. So yeah. bringing other people in on it has really been eye opening. And yeah, so much more can come. From yeah, that. it's good for everybody. Yes, you're right. Yeah. It sounds pretty full on. 
And you've got three children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know it's a typical question that we ask women, and I actually hate having to ask this to mm. women because it should be the same for everyone, actually. But how do you manage? How do you cope with running this full-on business and three young children? My husband is a domestic goddess. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> yes! <laughs> so there are elements of the household that I don't have to manage because he is a systems-orientated person. He will make sure that we have the things that we need in the house. He does the cooking and he, he, he gets stuff done. And I would not be able to do what I do if... I wasn't married to my husband. If I was married to one of some of my friends' husbands, I wouldn't be able to do it. So I'm very lucky. And, uh, yeah, I don't shy away from that because, you know, he makes my life much easier, much, much easier. That is a great answer. And it's quite an unusual answer as well, actually. I think you've you've struck gold there, actually. Yeah, I have. <laughs> yeah, I lock all the doors. I, I won't let him escape. I've got a good one. You certainly have. The art of delegating. First, was it easier to hand over the children to your husband when you were working or did you find that you wanted to be in control in the home as well as at the office? Yeah, I really... Uh, I, I'm still the one, I feel like, who, who does the kids' stuff. I just, took, I just took... I've got three, the two oldest ones. I just took them to Croatia um, on holiday and it was so good to be able to do those things. It's a real treat for me. One thing I really don't have is a social life. So, you know, I've really put that on the back burner. I'll hang out with my kids if I've got any time. Yeah, it's still a, it's still a treat for me to, to do that. And, you know, we, we have childcare, we pay for the nursery, they go to school, they have you know, previously gone to after school clubs. And, yeah, childcare's still mainly been my responsibility and it's something difficult to juggle. They're, they're of that age where, you know, they really want to hang out with me and I know that's not going to be the way forever. So, mm-hmm. I, yeah, mm-hmm. some people have said to me, you know, just be so much easier for you if you just got a nanny and if you had a nanny they'd be at home and they can do your pickups and, and that's like what I would rather do is try and scale my business so I have people who could be responsible for some of the jobs that I really shouldn't be doing so that then I can put that down and I can go and spend time with the kids I don't want them to be the ones that I put down it's easy to say oh can someone else go and get them but really they love it when I pick them up yes um so yeah I am I'm working really hard to delegate within the business so that I can have meetings, have fantastic conversations like this, generate new business, come up with some great ideas, and then give somebody a project that they can get along with and I can go home and have dinner with the kids. That's, that's the dream. Not always realised, but that's what, the point I'm trying to get to in a seamless fashion. One day I'd like to take a holiday and just turn my phone off, you know? Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that is something I find that everyone is trying to do, aren't they? We've been watching the Bill Gates inside his brain absolutely phenomenal how he has built a business and how he takes time off not to be away with his family but time off to be with himself to read books and and, you know how do you how do you better yourself how do you actually keep abreast of everything that's going on do you have to take time out even from your children and your husband to say right I need to I need to see what's out there I'm, I am, a, it's not very enjoyable at the moment, but I am a news junkie. So I'm really interested in politics. I do a lot of reading of fact and biographies. But really, going to the gym is the time that I really have when I'm not with my husband or my kids. When I was working in restaurants before I had kids, I had never once been inside a gym and, you know, you couldn't pay me to do it. But it has given me a lot more energy and a lot yeah. more drive to have personal goals 
and kind of small victories which are completely removed from work and it's manageable you know in lockdown I could I could do it in the garden and now I go to a gym or go to a class but it's it's entirely separate from everything else and I can't look at my phone that's the only time in the day I go to the cinema I'm going to check my phone if yeah. I go out to a restaurant I'm going to check my phone but I'm not going to do it when I'm in an exercise class so yeah the gym has really been game changing because it's just that hour which is completely separate from everything else in my life and I say I say it to people a lot when they say they don't have the time yeah I don't have the time either but I have to be selfish about about doing that because I I think I'd go a bit mad otherwise I'd sort of lose (laughs) (laughs) I'd lose track of everything if I didn't have that kind of hour of clarity you know your best ideas come to you when you're in the shower don't they those you're not doing anything else absolutely yeah so in the gym Uh, in the shower I need that reset so just just one thing, and I, I I don't often ask this question, Katie. I've asked it, I think, once before. But what's the typical ingredients in your handbag? Oh, my handbag is such a mess. My husband's like absolutely <laughs> horrified by things that are in my handbag. Um, my handbag, right? So at the moment, I got this new I got this new bag because it's both. A, <laughs> I suppose yeah, it, it does sum me up. It's <laughs> it's a gym bag. <laughs> which has also got a laptop case in, which also has a cooling section at the front that you can kind of keep bottles and warm stuff in. So it's it's a it really is like a one man bag. It's a Mary Poppins style. It looks like a professional bag, but then like you know my spare underwear and gym accoutrement all falls out. I've got my trainers in the front pocket. So yeah, everything in my bag is there. That sounds amazing, actually. Yeah, I think it's a lot of people so could do with that bag. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So like hidden pockets. It's got a little yeah waterproof section. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, it's a sort of a ready to go bag, isn't it? Yeah, I just wish someone would pack it for me because I just end up <laughs> stuffing loads of stuff into it and just kind of hoping for the best. Yeah, it's just like you know, my, my husband will help me. Well, help me. He will sort out the car and he'll remove all the things from the car that I need to survive, like my spare shoes, my you know my extra clothes, my books from last year, the thing I wanted to read, my extra nappies. And uh, I have a clean car, but I have none of the things I need. So I just, you know, pile it all in and um, <laughs> try and carry, try and get through that way. Got lots of things in reserve. Over the next few months and possibly years, you know, me and my husband are going to be embarking on new projects. And um, the economic climate now is obviously very uncertain, but you, it's definitely shown us that we have to do the things that, one, we're good at, and two, that make us really happy. Mm. So, um, you know, you ask yourself a lot of questions when the world turns upside down and uh, setting a path for the future that kind of works for our family but also kind of fulfills us professionally is is really important so I think for me I'm got my feet paddling below the surface always but I, I need to now make that decision to kind of do a lot more delegating and just do the jobs that I enjoy and and for him as well we're kind of looking at a future that is hopefully you know, going to have a slightly different balance to the way that it did before. That's really exciting. I think the, the, the virus has changed the mindset of a lot of people, actually, and made, given them space and time to think about maybe changing things going forward. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of people said they don't want things to go back the way that they were, but, you know, inevitably, everything's going to be very frayed at the edges now. People are still going to have to earn money, businesses are going to have to survive, and there's going to be a lot of kind of scrambling now in the next um, the next phase. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's about kind of choosing where you spend your time, you know, working with businesses that really have fantastic um, 
ideas that are driven, that have the right kind of goals that, um, that you can really believe in. Katie Underwood, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. Thank you very much for taking the time out because I know you're very, very busy, but thank you for joining us here in Women Making Waves. So, Linda, Katie Underwood, what a very confident young woman she is. I know. Really interesting to chat to, wasn't she? Really, really pleasant. And you can see, again, like we said before, there's this energy in Mm. some of these entrepreneurs. They're always successful no matter what they do. And I love the way she talks about her dad and that moment when... (laughs) I love it. That was absolutely hilarious. (laughs) Sneaking back up into the attic and setting yeah. up a business when he should have been at school. Her dad was extraordinary. I mean, you know, how do you hold that together? How do you say to your mum, yeah, I'm still going to school, but I go upstairs. That is a true entrepreneur, isn't it, who literally wants to get on it with is. stuff. Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio.